Uh, so let's dive in here, okay? Our, our study this week is uh, looking at King Solomon and the getting up to the point of building King Solomon's temple. Uh, 1 Kings 5 through 7. Uh, we'll also be kind of jumping over to uh, uh, some, some portions of 2 Samuel as well. Um, so, uh, so let's just let's take a look at this. Um, and the, I've entitled this Killing Solomon. Has anybody uh, read uh, any of Bill O'Reilly's books, the Killing, killing books? Uh, killing Jesus, Killing Kennedy, Killing Lincoln, Killing Patton, any of those? Well, these books basically are, are him trying to get underneath some of these stories of these. It started out with assassinations, which uh, is why they've got, uh, you know, they started out, I think Killing Lincoln or Killing Kennedy might have been the first one. Uh, uh, and so he's kind of stuck with that theme, even though Patton wasn't technically killed. You know, he was, um, he kind of stuck with that theme. But, uh the, the purpose of O'Reilly's books is to kind of get under the story and discover some truth underneath the scene that was, that was happening. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going we're gonna, to, that's why I titled this Killing Solomon. We're going to get underneath the story of Solomon um, to discover some truths and realities about this king um, that sometimes I don't think we quite get. Um, so let me just ask you guys, through the narrative about Solomon, uh, do we get the picture of a good king or a bad king? A, you know, a quality king or a not quality king? Well, it seems like it starts out good because he, he prays for wisdom. Okay. But it doesn't necessarily continue like that. Okay, so it seems like it starts out good. Okay, doesn't necessarily continue. Any other comments, thoughts about that? You're saying just good or bad? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 you know, there's, there's... You think of excess. There's lots of kings yeah. given. Is Solomon yeah. considered one of the good ones or one of the bad ones? Probably. More good than bad. Okay, so more good than bad. Okay. When you read through First Kings, it looks on the surface like it's a pretty glowing report about this king who's wise and wealthy and powerful. And he builds this elaborate temple and everything. Um, so from the surface, it looks like there's, a, there's something good going on here. Um, but when we dig underneath the surface of it, uh, we're going to find that really the, this, this narrative here in First Kings is kind of underlying, revealing some... Uh, some deficiencies in King Solomon. And uh, we know from reading you know, Ecclesiastes, which he wrote, that he pursued every possible worldly pleasure, and in the end he decided all of this is vanity. The only thing that matters is trusting God. You know, he comes to that conclusion finally at the end of life. Um, but a lot of his life, I think one of you guys said excess. It's kind of a uh, good description of his life. And so, um, so anyway, let's... So let's take a look at it, okay? Uh, the first t- thing there on your page is Solomon's skeletons in the closet. Um, Solomon disregarded the specific stipulations God gave for the kings of Israel found in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. As you read through uh, this, this narrative here in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 1 through 11 covers the, the story of Solomon. We're kind of honing in on 5 through 7 tonight. But all the way from the... the from Chapter 1 through chapter 11, the narrator, narrator is kind of showing that Solomon has some skeletons in his closet. And it all kind of centers in on this uh, uh, part here where Solomon disregarded these specific stipulations God gave for the kings, um, uh, for the king of Israel. Uh, and these are found in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. And so let's just kind of go through these. There's five of them here. The last one's really kind of one, but I've, I've split it up into two different sections. Um, the first one is, do not acquire a great number of horses, especially from Egypt. And so this is uh, one of the stipulations there found in Deuteronomy chapter 17. 
Let me just read it to you. I'll start in verse 14. It says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint, uh, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priest. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. And so this is the, thus the, the rules that God gave for uh, Israel later on whenever they would ask for a king. It's kind of interesting that verse 14 says, whenever you end the land and then you say, let us set a king over us like the nations around us. You know, that's kind of a, a backhand uh, uh, demonstration of how God knew that Israel was going to reject him once they got into the promised land. Because he doesn't say, once I decide to put a king over you, he says, once you decide that you need a king like all the people around you, this is, what, this is at the very least what you need your king to live like. And so the first one was, do not acquire a great number of horses, especially from Egypt. But then we see that Solomon had... 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, many of which were from Egypt. <laughs> and this is one of those verses that was uh, incorrect uh, on there. This is this supposed to be 1 Kings 4, 26 through 29. One of my fact checkers uh, caught that for me. Um, and so that was one of the, uh, one of the uh, examples there. The next one there on your uh, page is do not take many wives. How did Solomon do in this category? <laughs> Did not do good, right? Uh, he had 700 royal wives and 300 concubines, okay? Now, I don't know, but I'm still pretty sure that 700 is more than many. <laughs> you know, qualifies as many. You know, God said, do not take for yourself many wives. Um, what do y'all think? What would be a good number for many? One, well, yes, one is okay. Two is probably many, right? 700, that's a little bit more than many. So I'm pretty sure we can say Solomon stepped over that line. Um, but he had 700 royal wives and 300 concubines. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people have said before that, uh, you know, trying to get Solomon out of a jam or something like that, that those 700 wives were treaty, you know, bargaining for a treaty or, you know, marrying so that you have a good relationship with a king and that may be so, but I still don't see that there would be 700 kings around that area that he needed to make a treaty with. You know, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of people. I think Solomon just had a uh, a, a woman problem, a, a lust problem in that situation. Um, next one is do not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. And we read that uh, Solomon is, is considered by many to be the richest man in history. Um, I've seen some. Some things where people added up how much he would be worth in today's dollars, and it's in the you know hundreds of billions of you know dollars that he would he would be worth. Um, so he was considered to, to be one of the richest men in history. And then this last one, uh, the next to the last one, make a copy of the law and read it all the days of his life. So in other words, he was supposed to be a Bible scholar. Um, the king of Israel was should have been one of the top theologians 
in Israel. He should have known God's word, applied God's word, studied God's word um, all the days of his life. Um, now, Scripture does not tell us that Solomon did not do this, but it also doesn't tell us that he did this. As you go through the, uh, the Scripture in, in Kings and Chronicles, um, the, the writers of Kings and Chronicles are very matter-of-fact. They tell you what the uh, kings did well, and they tell you what the kings did poorly. Um, if a king did something, and, and, and they tell you the, kind of the balance, you know, that this one, uh, this king did what was good inside the Lord, but he did not remove all the high places, uh, you know, the worship of the Baals or something like that. You know, they kind of reveal those, those, those categories. So we're pretty certain that if Solomon had done this, they would have stuck it in there. And you know, somewhere in this story, they would have got it in there that he had fulfilled this. Um, uh, but it's, it's not in there. So Scripture doesn't mention whether Solomon did or did not do this, so we can't make a complete judgment on that. Um, and then the last one we can make a judgment on. Keep the law and the statutes of the law, not turning aside from the commandment. It says don't turn aside from, to the left or to the right. But 1 Kings 11 shows us that Solomon built altars and places of worship for the foreign gods of his wives, and his heart was turned toward them and away from God. So... Um, as Solomon brought those wives in, many of which were from outside countries, pagan countries, foreign countries, um, they brought with them their gods in order to appease their wives. He built altars for, their, um, uh, for the gods that they worshipped. And, and 1 Kings, uh, that, that verse there, 1 Kings 11, kind of gives us a, uh, uh, a list of some of those. Um, let's see here. Uh, 4 through 9, he says... Uh, I was just starting in, in one. This kind of tells you who the wives were. Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Um, but he, he did so. And it says in verse 4, uh, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. Um, he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So he did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Now listen to that last verse, verse 8. He did the same for how many of his foreign wives? All of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their God. And so we're going to just make the assumption that some of those 700 wives worshiped the same God. You know, so you, know, you probably didn't have to make an altar for every single wife because some of them probably worshiped the same gods. But even if you cut that in half or cut that into a third, uh, you're still talking about hundreds of foreign gods that Solomon, the king of Israel, brought into into the kingdom. The one who was supposed to be the greatest theologian in Israel wound up being the greatest detractor of uh, worship of God in Israel. And so, um, so pretty, pretty significant. That's a pretty significant point uh, talking about Solomon. So um, this kind of gives us a, a picture of Solomon's skeletons in the closet. And it kind of sets the stage for, uh, for what we're going to see here as we look at the difference between the temple and the tabernacle um, in dealing with, uh, dealing with Solomon. And so... Um, Let's look at the temple versus the tabernacle, which is on the, the next page, the back of your page there. Um, as we look at 1 Kings, uh, he begins talking about, uh, uh, the writer begins talking about 
Solomon's preparations for the temple and building the temple, um, and he directly links it back to uh, the Exodus in 1 Kings 6.1. Um, he says, In the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. And so that's the, uh, that is the foundational point that this writer chooses to go to in order to show when the temple was, was built. He goes all the way back to the Exodus. You know, he could have said, you know, in the time when the Israelites came into the Promised Land, or he could have said just in the, you know, whatever, uh, fourth year of Solomon's reign, that probably would have been specific enough because they keep detailed records. So he could have just said in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, you know, this happened, kind of like they, you know, they did in the uh, uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 6, you know, the king, year King Uzziah died, I was, you know, I had the vision, all this kind of stuff. You know, they, they could have had a more specific or, or, or recent uh, time marker, but he linked it all the way back to the Exodus, okay? Um, and so uh, there are many references, I didn't even write them all down, but there are many references throughout this story of, of all of Solomon's life, but especially the temple, um, that, that link back to the Exodus. And so it makes a lot of scholars think that the writer of Kings was comparing Moses and Solomon, showing the man Moses who was obedient to God and who followed God and who trusted God, and showing the man Solomon who believed in Solomon, loved Solomon, trusted in Solomon, followed Solomon, you know, kind of comparing those, those two. Um, and so, uh, but, so let's look at some difference between Moses who built the temple, or how Moses built the temple, and how Solomon built the temple, okay? The first thing that we see here, well, this is Solomon's temple, a little, little picture of, of what it would look like. Um, and actually, uh, Rusty is going to be leading next week, since I'll be out. Uh, he's going to do a fantastic job, and he's going to be looking more at some of the details of the temple and showing how it uh, was different than the tabernacle. Uh, this, is a, this is just a little model here of of the uh, temple. I couldn't find a drone shot of this temple. Yeah. I guess I guess by the time they got to Herod's temple they had gotten that technology, but they didn't have it back in Solomon's day. So um, anyway, so we just had to have a drawing, drawing of it. At least it's not black and white. Um, and so uh, the first thing that we see is is the role of God. Okay. Um, in the building of the tabernacle, God dominates the entire construction story of the tabernacle. You see there are tons of references, and, um, and these references give uh, evidence to the fact that God uh, was the one who was directing the action. Um, because in these verses, which go from uh, Exodus 25 through Exodus chapter 31, uh, God is speaking in the first person. So God is giving these directions. This isn't uh, somebody relaying a message to somebody else. God had comes to Moses and tells him all these directions. And it starts in 25, verses 1 through 2. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. Um, and then just verse after verse after verse, example after example after example of God um, speaking in the first person, telling Moses directly um, how to build uh, the temple. Um, in verse 30, uh, in chapter 30, there's a few other places where it says, The Lord said to Moses, The Lord said to Moses, you know, 30, 17 through 18, He's talking about the, the basin. The Lord said to Moses, make a bronze basin. Um, the Lord said to Moses, take the following fine spices. Then the Lord said to Moses, take fragrant spices. So throughout all these verses um, in 25 through 32, these are examples of how God was directing and prescribing how the tabernacle was supposed to be designed and supposed to be built. So God was dominating the design process of the tabernacle. And then once you get uh, into uh, chapter 30, uh, 35, uh, this is interrupted 
in Exodus 32 through 34, when Moses goes down the hill and finds the Israelites worshiping a golden calf, and they have to deal with that situation. But then once you get back into 35, Moses begins communicating to the Israelites what they're supposed to do. And so, like 35 verse 1, Moses assembled the whole Israelite community and said to them, Moses said, uh, 35.4, Moses said to the whole Israelite community, this is what the Lord has commanded. And so, <clears throat> all throughout uh, that, that chapter, 35 all the way down through 39, uh, it's the Lord commanded, the Lord commanded, uh, as the Lord had commanded, you know, there's all these words that demonstrate that God was in the, uh, Moses was communicating uh, God's word. And so that's the next two things there. Moses communicates God's word, and then God's commands are reiterated during the construction process. Um, and so we see from start to finish that the work is conceived, designed, empowered, and administered by God. So when it came to the tabernacle, God was in control. God was directing the mission. Um, God, was doing, uh, God was doing the work. However, when you get to the temple, God has no part in the construction of the temple. I want you to see that, that, that phrase, no part. God has nothing to do at all with the building of the temple. Um, if you skip down to the last point underneath that section, it says the only mention of God's role in the process is a warning to obey the law. The only time God says anything to... Uh, uh, concerning the uh, the building of the temple is in 1 Kings 6, 12-13 um, where it says the word of the Lord came to Solomon as for this temple you are building who's building it? Solomon as for this temple that you are building if you follow my decrees observe my laws and keep all my commands and obey them I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel and so it's pretty clear that God was not in the process of this this building of this temple. Solomon was building this temple. And so jump back up there and let's look at kind of fill in some of these blanks and, and see what uh, see what the scripture says. Um, let me uh, let me read real quick from 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses, uh, I won't read all of it, 2 Samuel 7 and I've got down there 1 through 17. Um, this is after David is, has built his house and um, he, uh, he says in verse 2, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Uh, Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, gives him a, uh, 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 he gives him a vision. He says in verse 5, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day, I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Um, wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God questions us, like, what part of this whole process made you think that I need a house? You know, Because David, David was trying to honor the Lord. He wasn't trying to be prideful or selfish or anything like that. He was trying to honor God. But God's basically saying, hey, I don't need you to build me a house. I've got a tent. <laughs> you know, he would have, you know, I bet God, God would love to hang out with Glenn. And Glenn's probably that way. I don't need a house. i got a tent, you know. <laughs> we'll go camping. Um, and so he says, tell, tell David, my servant, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Um, he kind of recounts the history that, uh, uh, that they've had together. And then you get down to verse 11. The Lord declares to you, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. 
Verse 13, he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings afflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So that's the, uh, that was the word of the Lord to David. So did God ever say anything about what he wanted in a house? What he wanted, he, he said, the only thing he said is, he is the one who will build a house for my name. You know, he said that referring to David's son. Um, so, but he didn't say anything about a house of cedar, right? So that's our, our next point there, is that God never asked for a temple. Okay, God never did ask for a temple. You can't go anywhere in scripture and find a place where God said, build me a temple. God said, build me a tabernacle, build me a tent, but he didn't say anything about building a temple. So nowhere in Scripture do we get any idea that God wanted a, uh, a temple. Um, if you go back into 1 Kings chapter 5, Solomon is writing a, a letter to Hiram, king of Canaan, and uh, he tells Hiram, king of Canaan, that God had told him to build him a temple. He doesn't say it in his exact words, but... He basically says that in verse 2 of chapter 5. He says, you know, or verse 3, You know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side, and there is no adversary or disaster. And I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord told my father David when he said, Your son whom I will put on the throne in your place will build the temple for my name. Is that what God said? Did he say Solomon was going to build a temple? I mean, you could make that interpretation, right? But he also says that these, uh, this uh, son of, of David would... Um, I've lost my spot here. Um, he says he'll establish his kingdom. He'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. He'll establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, was... Was Solomon's throne established forever? Was even the, the kingdom after Solomon established forever? No. What happened right after Solomon died and wasn't king anymore? Israel split in two, right? And so this, there is some, I think this is God's telling David, there is somebody who's going to build a house for my name. You know, maybe one of those houses not made with, you know, hands and bricks and stones, but, a, you know, a house of some other kind. Um, he's the one who will build a house for my name. And he talks about, you know, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. I really feel like this is a, you know, Christological, you know, example of uh, God prophesying about the coming of the Messiah. But Solomon takes it to mean him. Because Solomon's got a little bit of a pride issue. So, <laughs> so Solomon thinks that uh, he uh, is the one. So he claims this divine instruction that he was never actually given. You know, he, he claims this is God was talking about me building this temple, um, but uh, God was never specifically gave that to Solomon. You can make a really good case that it was Solomon's responsibility, that that was God's plan. You can make that case, but it's not explicitly said in, uh, in Scripture. Okay, and so God has no part in there. He never asked for it. Uh, and then we get down here to this fact. Solomon is the key figure in the design and the building process. We've already said that God had no part whatsoever in building the temple. And in fact, the language used in 1 Kings chapter 6 um, really shows that Solomon was the, the primary 
focus on this. Verse 1 says, He, Solomon, began to build the temple of the Lord. He made windows. So Solomon built the temple and completed it. He lined its interior walls. He partitioned off. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. He placed the cherubim inside the innermost room. He also covered the floors. He made the doors out of olive wood. He built the inner courtyard. And so what do you see in that chapter? He, Solomon, 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 Solomon. I don't think the writer is just being, you know, he's just telling how it is here, you know. And, and talking about the tabernacle, God commanded, God commanded. We did this just as the Lord said, this is just as the Lord said. The Lord said to us, you know. But here in this, it's Solomon, 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 Solomon. So Solomon is the key figure in the design, the building process. The next thing is pretty crazy. Hiram, a Canaanite king, is his building supplier. And so a Canaanite king was Solomon's building partner. You know? And there's, there's nothing in, this, in the scripture that said he was not supposed to go uh, work with foreigners. But there is something in scripture about what he was, they were supposed to do with Canaanite people in the first place. And what was that? Destroy them, right? Not make them your business partner. <laughs> uh, but he, rather than destroy them, he makes them his, his, uh, his business partner and basically makes Hiram rich uh, because of the, uh, the money that he sends his way um, uh, and the, 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 the payment that he makes for this, uh, all the cedar that he gets from Lebanon. Hiram is the supplier for uh, the, uh, the, the trees that they get to build the house. Okay? So his, his building supplier's partner in this is Hiram a Canaanite king. And then and remember back when we talked about, I can't remember it was last week, week before, we talked about the building of all the elements for the tabernacle. Um, who did that? you remember the guy's name? It was Bezalel. Bezalel was the guy's name that did that. He was an Israelite. He was chosen by God, and he was empowered by God to do that. So it was just this, I mean, you're talking about, I remember we talked about for the Ark of the Covenant, only Bezalel touched the Ark of the Covenant. He was the only one that worked on the Ark. All the other things, you had Bezalel and Othniel and some other people that worked on the different elements, but only this special person chosen specifically built the Ark of the Covenant. So God really took seriously who built his, the pieces of his, of his house, right? His, his temple. Well, check this out. A Canaanite craftsman is the one who built everything for the temple. And his name was Horam, Huram. Uh, if you have a certain translation, I know for me, I was studying out today out of the English Standard Version. Um, in the English Standard Version, the king's name is Hiram and the craftsman's name is Hiram. So it gets a little bit confusing. In the New International Version, the king's name is Hiram and the craftsman's name is Huram. And so there's two different names there. And probably what you're running into there is that in original, <coughs> original Hebrew, there was no vowels. Um, so you just, had, you just had the consonants. And so Huram and Hiram would have looked exactly the same. Uh, whenever the, I don't, you know, the original manuscripts uh, that were, that we go by, you know, I don't know whether they have an I or a U there or not, but that's probably what's going on is that um, one scholar decided that you can't really tell the difference between Hiram and Huram, so they just picked one and made it both their names. But, um, uh, but it does say in uh, 1 Kings 7.13 that Hiram came to Israel, he, Solomon sent for Huram, to come to Israel to build these things. And I'm pretty sure Solomon would not have sent for the king of Tyre to come and be his craftsman in his temple. It had to have been somebody else, even if it was the same name. Um, so it would be somebody else. But we're just going to go with a different name just to make it a little bit less confusing. Um, so a Canaanite craftsman was the builder of the temple ornaments. Solomon didn't even use an Israelite, somebody who knew God. 
he to build these things for the house of God. He used a foreigner for the house of God. So Solomon's just really kind of out there doing this on his own. Um, so he has. So God has no part in this construction of the temple. And like we said, the only mention was uh, was his warning to to be obedient. All right. So that's why he did that. Hmm? It's that important. Why did he? Why did he use them? Well, they were probably the best. Okay. Simple yeah. as that. Yeah. Okay. Um, they're they're probably the best that there was, and so he went and got the best, which is the same reason he went probably went and got cedar, and we're going to see here in a moment. There's actually a theological uh, theological uh, point here to be made that he used cedar. The temple was made out of acacia wood, um, but cedar was strong and majestic and powerful. You know, David's house was a house of cedar. Solomon's temples and palaces were made out of cedar. That was kind of the uh, that was a big deal. We'll, we'll get to that here in a little bit. Um, and so, so uh, Hiram was probably just the best craftsman in the world, you know, kind of, kind of deal. All right, so let's look at the next thing, the role of the people. Uh, with the tabernacle, the people gave free will offerings and willingly served to construct the tabernacle. Um, you remember they, they, uh, they brought all their offerings and gifts to the Lord in order to construct the tabernacle. Remember we talked about the wash basin outside was made purely from bronze mirrors given by the ladies as their gifts. Uh, and so, um, so the offerings of the people willfully and joyfully is what the tabernacle was built with. Those verses there in Exodus 25 through 36 that I've got listed, those are um, uh, examples of, uh, of uh, the people giving freely and giving willfully uh, um, to the tabernacle. Um, but then when you get to Solomon, he conscripted 30,000 Israelites to forced labor and 150,000 people of other nations to build the temple. And this is found um, in verse 13 of chapter 5. King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month so that they spent one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 70,000 carriers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hills, as well as 3,300 foremen who supervised the project and directed the workers. And so basically the temple of Solomon was built by slave labor. What does that remind you of? Egypt. So not only is Solomon going back to Egypt to get horses and going to get Egypt to get his favorite wife, because his favorite wife was the Pharaoh's daughter, and uh, amassing for himself wealth and stuff like that, he's beginning to act like the king of Pharaoh too. He's building his temple uh, on the backs of slave labor, and in some ways building his temple on the backs of Israelite slave labor, since he conscripted them and made them to forced labor. And so Solomon has become uh, basically what the Israelites tried to avoid, uh, a pagan king who worships foreign gods and enslaves people to build a temple. Um, and so uh, the role of the people was a lot different. Um, there's no mention at, at all of the people making offerings for the building of the temple. It's all been bankrolled by Solomon. It's all according to his plan and all by his wealth. And so the people really had no role, uh, no willful or joyful role, in building the temple. Um, the next thing is the role of the leading craftsmen. We've already talked about this a little bit. Um, with the tabernacle, they are chosen by God. Um, they are Israelites, and they are empowered by God's Spirit to do the work. And so they are chosen by God, they are Israelites, and they are empowered by God's Spirit to do the work. And remember we said Be Bezalel was the primary one. Othniel was, one of, was his helper, his assistant, but there were many others that also worked uh, for building the uh, pieces of the tabernacle. 
And then we talked about this a little bit as well with the temple. Huram was chosen by Solomon. He wasn't chosen by God. Um, Huram was part Canaanite and lived in Canaan. Uh, he, he, his mother was actually Israelite, but he lived, his father was a Canaanite and he lived in Canaan. So he was, he would have been religiously and uh, culturally a Canaanite. And then he was definitely not empowered by the Spirit of God. Uh, the scripture does say that he had wisdom to build great things, but it does not say anything like it did about Bezalel when it says the Lord gave him wisdom to build the different things for the tabernacle. And so he, he was wise to build those things, which basically just means he had skill. He knew how to do it, but he was not empowered by the Spirit to do the work. Um, all right, and then just a few other differences. Uh, first of all, the... Uh, uh, Let's see, the wood. Okay, the wood. We, we kind of got to this a while ago. Acacia wood was a local wood and was prescribed by God for the construction of the tabernacle. It is mentioned 26 times in Exodus 25 through 30. Chapters 25 through 30. Um, anytime something is repeated over and over and over and over, there's some significance there, right? Um, so it's, it's pretty significant that that's, that's repeated over and over. And we'll, we'll see why here in just a little bit. Um, so acacia wood is mentioned 26 times. How many times is cedar mentioned in those passages? Zero. No mention of cedar whatsoever in the building of the tabernacle. Um, and the tabernacle would, I mean, cedar would have still been a prominent and prestigious wood even in those days. Not like it all of a sudden got popular, you know, even though, because Lebanon was still close, it was still well known. Um, so it still would have been a popular wood. Cedar, uh, which is a foreign wood, was used for the construction of the temple. And it's mentioned 70, 17 times in 1 Kings 5 through 7. And so there's a definite emphasis on this type of wood so why is this uh why is this significant okay they're they're the writers really wanting to emphasize the fact that the cedar was used to build the temple um and god has already said what god said he didn't want a house of cedar second samuel 7 2 god rejects the idea that he wants a house of cedar in second samuel 7 2 he said who what part of our story makes you think i want a house of cedar you know that's what he said to David, that's just the modern translation. Um, you know, what are you thinking? What do you think? I want a house of cedar. I don't want a house of cedar. I've got a tent. It's got a tent. I've got a tent made out of goat hair and porpoise skins. That's, you know, that's pretty cool, right? Now, God didn't need a house of cedar when he had this awesome rustic tent that he lived in. And so God was saying, I don't, I don't need it. Um, and so he didn't want a house of cedar. And in fact, throughout scripture, cedar is often used by the Old Testament prophets as symbols of pride, self-exaltation, and arrogance, and the use of burning cedar as a symbol of judgment. And so especially those, like those passages that I have down there, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, um, those are examples of places where the Scripture uses the burning of cedar and cedar paneling as expressions of judgment. Um, so cedar kind of had a negative connotation to it uh, in those things. Um, so God just, he didn't, he, he didn't need a house of cedar. He didn't want a house of cedar. And it was foreign to uh, what God, uh, what God had, had planned for in the tabernacle. It was completely different. Um, and uh, and so, so that's just something to, to see there. Uh, the next thing is the timing. Uh, God immediately indwells the tabernacle. Exodus 40, uh, 20 through 35. They set the tabernacle up and... Um, make the offer for the sacrifice, and God immediately comes in. Uh, they dedicate the elements. God immediately comes in and indwells the temple. Uh, it's, not, it's not something that takes a long time. God does it immediately. But with the dedication of the temple, 
it doesn't take place for 11 months. Okay? It doesn't take place for 11 months. Now, it doesn't say anything about why in there, but this is just 1 Kings 6.38 says that Solomon finished the temple, and 8.2 uh, is 11 months later, um, and they, uh, that's when they dedicate. That's when they dedicate the temple. Another thing that's kind of interesting is that in 1 Kings, they uh, mark everything by the Canaanites. Uh, the writer marks everything by the months of the Canaanites to use. Like we use, um, uh, it would be like uh, uh, us using some sort of Chinese calendar or something, you know, using those months or whatever. You know, Jew, the Jews had their months, they had their names for their months, but they were using the Canaanite months. With, you know, a lot of scholars think that that's the writer of the Kings kind of uh, showing that Canaanite culture had influenced so much that um, uh, they, were, they were thinking about it in those terms. Um, so God doesn't immediately come into the, to the temple. Why do you think that is? What did you say? It wasn't, it wasn't what he wanted. What did you say? It wasn't, it wasn't involved in it. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking. This is just me talking. This isn't anything I've, I've you know, studied up on or Boy, found anywhere. That's right. It's almost like God had to be invited in because it wasn't his house. <laughs> you know, all throughout this, we've seen Solomon's temple, Solomon's temple, Solomon's temple. You know, God said, uh, if you want me to live in that house you're building, <laughs> you know, then you need to be obedient and all this kind of stuff. It's almost like he had to wait for Solomon to invite him inside so that he could come into this house that Solomon built for him. That's more of a monument to Solomon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Than yeah, it really is. And that, that, that's a good thing about the next part, the setting of it. God's tabernacle was the central figure in the camp of the Israelites. Remember, and it's the only structure that's described in the story of Exodus. Um, you know, it's, it's described in detail. Um, how to build it? Did they does it say anything about how Moses built his tent? No. Does it say about anything about the tent Moses built for his wife? No. Does it say anything about uh, you know a governing tent or anything like that? No. And so uh, the only t only structure that's described in the Exodus story is the tabernacle, and it's set up member dead center. We put it right there in the center, and all of Israel is supposed to camp. Uh, around it. And it even describes how Israel is supposed to camp out around it. Yet with Solomon, the temple is just one part of this massive palace complex that Solomon builds for himself. It involves his palace, his, you know, his house. It involves the, the house that he built for Pharaoh's daughter. Um, it involves, you know, all these other buildings that he would have had to build for his, his wives and his concubines. I mean, just all these different things that he would have had to have built. This was just one part of it. In fact, one of the things the Rusty will probably get into next week is it shows how diminutive the temple was in comparison to Solomon's Solomon's house. Solomon's house was twice as big as 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 the temple, or even more than that. Selfish. Yeah, yeah. He had a uh, his house was better than God's house. Um, so uh, so it was just one part of of Solomon's palace structure. All right. So so what can we glean from this? Because this is interesting information, but if it doesn't mean anything to us in 2017, it's, it's kind of pointless, right? Well, I, th I pulled out a few things here that I think are, are good points for us to remember. And the first one is this, is that God desires obedience rather than offerings. In Psalm 51, 16 through 17, in David's confession of his sin with Bathsheba, um, he says, you don't want burnt offerings or I would bring them. What you want is a broken and contrite heart. And um, so God doesn't want your offerings, I mean, you know, God doesn't need your offerings. God doesn't uh, need your elaborate displays of, 
uh, fake love or anything like that. God wants your obedience. The best way to love God is to obey Him. It's just like, how I many? I don't want to ask how many because I don't want to embarrass any of you guys. Hopefully, you guys brought something to your sweetheart on Valentine's Day. Um, if that was the only time you ever showed her love, would she believe that you really loved her? No. And if the only time you ever show God love is whenever you do something elaborate for Him or you know, wear your Jesus t-shirt or come to church and drop a big offering in the plate, if that's the only time you ever show love to God, He knows. He's not, you can't fake God out. God doesn't want fake elaborate offerings. He just wants your obedience. And if you're obedient to Him, then offering things is going to be a part of that, but it's going to be coming from the right direction. It's not going to be coming because you want to try to gain His favor or you want to try to impress somebody else. It's going to come out of, I love you, God, and so I'm going to give you something. In the same way that if you walked up on Valentine's Day and said, Honey, since it's Valentine's Day, I got you a gift. <laughs> that doesn't mean the same as, Honey, I love you, and so I got you this gift. There's a big difference, right? And so God doesn't want your superficial uh, uh, offerings. He wants your obedience. And that kind of leads into the next thing here, is that a disobedient heart betrays your surface-level actions. And I think that's what this story reveals to us about Solomon. If somebody from the outside was looking at Solomon, what would they see? Man, this guy loves his God. Look at the temple that he has built for his God. It's got columns made out of cedar. It's got bronze pillars on the front. It's got it's gold-plated on the inside. Gold-plated. I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive, right? I mean, Solomon must love his God because of what he has done for him. But the writer of Kings knew the, the understory. He knew what Solomon was supposed to be. He knew he was supposed to be a humble uh, servant of the Lord. He was supposed to be a theologian. You know, he was supposed to be uh, not hoarding wealth for himself, not depending upon his own might, which is the horses and chariots. He knew he was supposed to be a, a man, of, a servant of the Lord who trusts God and leads his people. He was supposed to be, supposed to be a pastor. You know, he was supposed to be the, the, past, the lead pastor of Israel was what Solomon was supposed to be. And so the the, uh, the disobedient heart of Solomon told those who really knew, told them the real truth about Solomon's uh, integrity and showed the, the uh, shallowness of his actions. And then this last one goes for us as individuals and the church. A um, person in a church must be designed and built by God, empowered by His Spirit. Anything made by our own strength will ultimately fail. I guess I skipped that one on the, on the blanks on my slide. Um, so anything that made by our own strength will ultimately fail. Um, you know, it, it's, it's true. Future, everything you try to do for God in your own strength is going to fall short. Uh, that is, an, that is a, an offering without a broken and contrite heart. Anything you try to do in your own strength is going to fail. Any, uh, me as, as the pastor, if I try to lead the church in my own strength, I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail you and I'm going to fail the Lord. Um, we, as the men in our church, if we try to lead our families and lead our church out of our own strength, then we're going to fail. We're going to fail our church. We're going to fail our wives. We're going to fail our children. We're going to fail our grandchildren. Um, we, we have to be willing to just let the Lord work in us and through us and let Him build us into what He wants us to become. Because um, only He knows the real plans. <laughs> you know, Only He knows the plans. Ephesians 2, 8, uh, 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 Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, uh, you know, Paul says that God has prepared us for works that He or has has saved us for works that He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
God has had plans for us before before he ever said, let there be light, he knew what he wanted for me. Before he ever said, let there be light, he knew what he wanted for you. And he wants us to walk in those plans. And so if we do anything else on our own, uh, we'll ultimately fail. Let me just end with this verse. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Psalm 127.1. Who wrote that psalm? Solomon. Solomon wrote that, that psalm. That's pretty interesting because as I was studying this, I just kept thinking, man, that's the verse. I, just, I was like, that's the verse I'm going to end on. That's a good verse. And I was looking it up and you know, just checking to make sure I had it right. At the top of that, the top of that psalm, it says, a psalm of Solomon. Solomon wrote that verse. It makes, it makes me wonder if he wrote that about the same time he wrote Ecclesiastes. You know? The end of Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, nothing in the... Nothing in there can, can tell us for sure, but just for him to be able to start start with that in, in that psalm. And it's a psalm of ascent, so it's a psalm that uh, they would sing as they went up to the temple. You know, they would sing songs as they were going up the steps. And so um, this would have been the opening song verse of this psalm. And it just makes me wonder if maybe he wrote this psalm at the end of his life um, as he was preparing to go back to the house of the Lord and, and worship. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And so my encouragement to all of us is let's let the Lord build our house. Let the Lord build our, our personal house. You know, the spirit of the, the, as the living temple of the Spirit of God. Let Him build us up into a, uh, into a living temple. Let Him build this house of our church. I'm oh, sorry. Yes, sir. There's a lot. There's a lot of it. A lot of parallels between that, and between us as the temple of the Spirit, and what we have to become in order to be an acceptable dwelling place of the Lord. Yeah. So, so let's let ourselves be built up as individuals and as a church and as leaders of families and homes. You know, let ourselves let the Lord build our house. And if we'll do that, uh, then it will not fail. It will not fail. Yeah. It didn't matter. Didn't matter all the other things he had. That's the only thing that mattered. Every time he got into a period of exodus, whatever it was, whether it's his search for knowledge and, and his desire to be, be thought of as great because of his knowledge, or whether it was his his binge in alcohol or women mm-hmm. or whatever, he would always come to that conclusion that that's damning. You know, Solomon was the, he was the ultimate playboy. He had all the money he could have, and so he's just like, I'm bored. I'm going to chase after women for a few years. That didn't fulfill him. I'm going to chase after knowledge for a few. That didn't fulfill him. I'm going to chase after power. You know, nothing fulfilled him until he gets to that last verse. 
you know. So, any other questions?